HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Do you want to know what the future looks like? If you do, this episode of Tech Bites is for you. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. That's about a million of you a month from 65 countries around the world. I'm Jennifer Leuzzi, and this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk about food tech with influencers, innovators, and creators. Today is September 7th, 2017, episode 110. And I am very pleased to say we are the first live show of Heritage Radio Network's 2017 fall season. It seems like it's been a really long time since I've been in the booth. And it seems like it's been a really long time since I've talked to David Tatashore, our engineer and the network's studio manager. How was your summer break? It was great. It was very relaxing. Uh, went to the beach for a solid week. That was great. Much needed. Wonderful. So we're refreshed. We're back. We're ready to go. Ready to go. We're ready to win the fall season. We're winning already. <laughs> we are because we're first. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Joining us today for the first episode of the fall season is Michael Weiss, who is co-founder and CEO of the World's Fair Nano, which is going to be a World's Fair event that's happening in Brooklyn later this month. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. So we always start Tech Bytes talking about apps, our favorite apps, new ones you've just discovered, old ones that have been living on your home screen for a few years. David, do you have an app that you like for us this week? Well, we're right back on the Dave Tad privacy train. Uh, <laughs> Did you I, ever get off? No, no, of course not. 
I, I, I may have mentioned this on the show before. I, w- I think I may have uh, mentioned how I was thinking of upgrading my VPN client. And yes. I did. I am now on uh, private internet access or PIA. Um, it's great. You can have it installed on up to five devices. So um, I, we have it on two computers and two phones right now and, and one, one uh, TBD. So uh, it's great. They don't keep logs. Uh, the connection speeds are pretty fast. The company itself is based in the U.S., but um, you know they have uh, servers all over the world that they utilize. And again, they don't keep logs, so A plus. Especially since I think um, it was just recently there was some legislation in the past that's going to uh, finally allow ISPs to sell your information openly to businesses. So trying to get away from all that. Exactly. Well, I, I think we've passed the point where you can't you can't not use the internet. So yeah, right. Yeah, terrible. Especially here on an internet radio station. <laughs> Good point, touche. How's the price point on this in terms of using it? It is forty bucks a year. Oh, that's pretty good. At least for the first year. I didn't read the 40 bucks for a year for <laughs> five be, devices? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very good price. You'll be very disappointed in me, though, that I did not read the terms of or the fine print. So no I don't does. know if that potentially could go up after the first year. But um, No one does. Yeah. No one reads the fine print. And what David is talking about, if you are a new listener to Tech Bytes and perhaps not familiar with our catalog of episodes, we did an episode... Um, 104 in July called Read the Fine Print Instagram Terms of Use. And we had um, our resident intellectual property attorney come on and we read through the terms of use because people really don't realize what they're agreeing to and what they've already given away in many instances when people download apps. Promises, promises. Buyer beware. My app this week is I've, something that I've been doing quite a bit this summer. I've been going to a lot more theater and a lot more ballet and music and, and seeing live performances. Um, and while it's really one of the amazing benefits of living in New York City, it also can be quite expensive. Um, you know, tickets can be $100, 150 2 3 $400. So looking around for discounted tickets, uh, I think, is something we're all always interested in. For the theater, especially if you have a flexible schedule and can make a decision to go, you know, on a couple days notice or even an hour before curtain, there's an app called Today Ticks, T-I-X. And it's actually been around since 2013, but it came to notice actually because they did a huge subway campaign this summer. Um, Subway takeovers all over the place in stations, on trains. It was actually created by two Broadway producers to help sell tickets to shows. It is international. You can use it in London, Toronto, Chicago, New York City, San Francisco, lots of lots of cities. And it has pretty much everything. So it's an app. You download it. You pick the show you want, the day you want. It gives you the discount. You buy your ticket. And then you show up, and there's a guy in a red T-shirt standing outside the theater with the tickets, and you get to go. And it's pretty good. And I find it easy to use, and I love it, and I'm seeing a lot more theater. It's available for Android and iOS. It's free. Of course, the tickets aren't free, but they're definitely very discounted, which is helpful. So that's my app. When you're not listening to Heritage Radio, you can go to the theater. 
Michael, do you have an app that you are using a lot lately? I do have an app. It's extremely less practical than your two apps. Mm-hmm. I think I'm like six months or so behind, but there's this game called Balls. B-A-L-L-S? L-Z, actually, which I'm finding incredibly fun. My high score right now is 395 for the Balls players out there. And I've been using that pretty frequently. Describe the game for us. I can actually show you the game. So it's like uh, you have a certain number of balls, and then there are all these squares that have different numbers on them. The numbers start off at like ones and twos, and then eventually they get up to hundreds. So it's a little, actually, he's showing it to me, and unfortunately, people listening on radio can't see what you're holding. But it looks a little bit like Tetris, actually. Yeah, it is. Where you have, uh, it's, you know, a screen, you're at the bottom, you're throwing the balls up in the air, and then you have the squares, and then they disappear. So it, totally. it has a Tetris-like look to it, it a little bit. And then you increase the number of balls you get by getting those white things. You get these little white pulsating icons, and then you get more balls so that you can destroy the higher levels. Okay. Highly recommend balls. There we go. We're not really, we, we don't, never really get a lot of gamers on this show. You're not really a gamer, are you, David? No, not at all. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I play the Neko Atsume cat game every now and again, but that's pretty much it. I, I was really into NES and SNES, and then I kind of fell off. Yeah, too much, too much else to do. I feel like social media is like my video game now. Yeah, too much media in general. Too many podcasts. I don't know. Esports are kind of becoming the thing, though. Yeah, true. I mean, there's like, I, I actually do play League of Legends. Okay. Not competitively, but as a therapeutic exercise. And uh, there's like, I think 25 million people play mm-hmm. League of Legends. And now the League of Legends players get contracts, like sports players. They can be worth over a million bucks for like a year to yep. play on a specific team. It's pretty nuts. Yeah, it is. It's the future. I'm waiting for the... I'm surprised we haven't had a movie about that yet. There is a documentary, actually, on Netflix called All Work, All Play, which is awesome. And it kind of just shows you the origin stories of esports and esports leagues. And it makes it pretty exciting. That's interesting. I'll take a look at that. I was thinking of something more along the lines of like a big adventure movie, a big action movie where people are playing and there's some nefarious thing happening and maybe they're murdering players or they're fixing the games or when yeah. you die in the game you die in real life or something like that yeah yeah there's no fiction esports movie yet there are game movies like um oh, there's the one with the gerard butler guy i think his name is where like the the a kid controlled what he thought was a player but it was actually a real human oh uh, yeah so, like a war games kind of thing yeah yeah mm-hmm. like war games mm-hmm. kind of thing there's also Lara croft tomb raider true which yeah. is epic <laughs> So Michael is here, as we said at the top of the show, because he is co-founder and CEO of the World's Fair Nano. And essentially, he and his partners have decided that they want to bring back the World's Fair to the United States in all its former glory and have started uh, last year, August 2016, um, with the World's Fair here. They did one in San Francisco. They're getting ready to put one up in Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Expo Center from September 16th to 17th. And, you know, the interesting thing is that it's a very, it's a jam-packed schedule of two days. It's a look at the future, the future from everything from data to virtual reality to food to art to performance to sports um, tech. There's speakers that, you know, are very similar to, you know, TED Talk kind of things. We have the, um, one of the Foursquare 
heads talking about location data, you have blockchain data, in addition to things like the future of food. So it's a pretty wide array of things that would hub under the future. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about this, aside from all of the, the, the fun tech that you can go and look and see and experience for yourself, was the evolution of the World's Fair. It's definitely romantic. It's definitely something that is a cultural icon, you know, I think internationally. But my first question to Michael was, you know, we already have a World's Fair. It's called Expo. And it happens every few years in different countries. There's one in Kazakhstan for 2017. The last one in 2015 was in Milan. So there kind of is a World's Fair organization. Um, and I wonder what the difference is between this World's Fair, the existing World's Fair, and then a lot of just the futuristic tech events that, you know, pop up around the world. Yeah, totally. So... World's fairs, unbeknownst to almost all Americans, do still happen in the present day, and they're known as World Expos. Every five years, there's a big six-month event that takes place in some country other than the U.S. Um, 2000 was Hanover, Germany. 2005 was Aichi, Japan. 2010 was Shanghai, China. 2015, Milan. And then 2020 will be Dubai. Um, the trick regarding the United States is that some years ago, in 2001, uh, the U.S. government had canceled its membership in the International Treaty Organization that oversees present-day World's Fairs, which is why they just became irrelevant to Americans. Um, and that also went along with legislation that prohibited um, public federal spending on U.S. participation in World's Fairs, World Expos. So I was like, okay, so World's Fairs, they're not really slated to happen in the U.S. because there's just no money for them, really, and no one's paying attention to them. And I became a super firm believer that a World's Fair is perhaps the best place to find inspiration um, for visitors and inventors alike. So the principal difference that you see between the World's Fair you're creating and the expo that exists, even though the U.S. did participate in Milan 2015. Um, and if people are interested in hearing about that, you can check out Tech Bytes episode 45, where we had Mitchell Davis, who was the head of the U.S. pavilion. It's pretty interesting. Those are things that happen in outside countries. So you want to have the World's Fair experience within the United States so Americans can come and participate and see and be inspired. Yeah, so I think, you know, a World's Fair as this international showcase of the future. With international participants. With international participants, I think would be best served and just be most progressive for the world if it happened in the U.S. because the U.S. creates the most future, one, and we have the attention of the international community more so than other countries. So as this sort of beacon to the future that a World's Fair represents... I think it would just be the most exciting for the world if it happened in the U.S. Um, and then as far as, you know, differences that I have in my mind for a 21st century World's Fair versus the World Expos that happen. So not to get too dry into history, but... No, but, you know, hi you know I think history is interesting. I, I think World's Fair is something that people hear quite a bit. I don't know that anybody actually knows what that means. I think they think about... Um, the unveiling of the Eiffel Tower and, you know, the World's Fair in London. And they think about the, you know, the Ferris wheel in Chicago. And, and they think about, you know, men in black and flushing queens and the leftover, you know, weird 
architecture that was left over from the World's Fair here. I mean, it's had a little bit of a renaissance if you follow the Marvel Iron Man movies because there's some quite pivotal moments that happen at the... Um, yeah, the, the Stark flushing, Expo, the Stark Expo. Right, at 1964 <laughs> World's Fair in Queens. So, I mean, it's definitely cultural. And I mean, the fact that you've decided to use and take the, the World's Fair name, um, you know, I think resonates with people, but I don't think people know what it is. Yeah, so the first World's Fair ever took place in London in 1851. I think you referenced that. Mm-hmm. It was called the, the Exhibition of the industry, the works and industry of all nations. Well, right. Although the precursor to that was the event in Paris in 1844, the Industrial Exposition. Yeah. So there was a series of, um, I think it was seven or eight events in France that sort of preceded conceptually the, the, 1851, the idea. Right. Mm-hmm. But most historians, and myself included, say the 1851 London one was the first official World's Fair organized by Prince Albert. Um, but yeah, there was a series of these industrial sort of expos in France that that inspired, we think, the original 1851 World's Fair. Um, but yeah, so that happened. And then, you know, for that fair, they built this thing called the Crystal Palace, which was uh, one of the first ever prefabricated structures and largest glass building in the world at the time. It was a million square foot structure. And that housed all the amazing work, you know, the industry of all nations, literally. And then... You know, you came to New York in 1853 for the first American World's Fair, when it, which took place in Bryant Park. And at that fair, Elisha Otis showed the world the first ever safety elevator, which was the first passenger elevator. And so he stood on this platform and just would go down, and the audience freaked out because they thought that he was going to plummet to his death because people weren't used to moving platforms. Um, and then lots of other World's Fairs happened. 1876, Philadelphia was the telephone also, the Statue of Liberty got its start at that World's Fair through French designer Auguste Bartholdi, who brought it to the, the right hand and torch mm-hmm. to the fair in order to gain popular support um, so that he could finance the rest of the statue. People think the Statue of Liberty was just a gift from France, but it actually was a guy who wanted it to happen. Um, and then World's Fairs kept happening uh, you know, in San Francisco in 1915, St. Louis 1904, the electrical outlet. Um, New York, 1939. And then in 1928, the, the BIE actually formed, which is the treaty organization that oversees World's Fairs and present-day World Expos. For the first 77 years of World's Fairs, there was no like oversight of them, um, which is why there was two World's Fairs in the same year in 1915 in San Francisco and San Diego. It was like crazy. And then, um, and then they kept happening now with some organization to it and you know they they continue to happen in the present day just not in the u.s but looking at the full history there are sort of three distinct eras of world's fairs the first is industrialization and that's the first era when it was all about invention and creation and you know the the telephone and electricity and the first live television broadcast that was the first era of world's fairs the second era of world's fairs was is no, the sort of cultural exchange era. And it was when we were starting to realize that we were global and we could communicate globally with things like telephones. And then the current era of World's Fairs is known as the nation branding era. Um, and so countries typically like Dubai, uh, you know, they, they are going to spend 20 or 30 or 40 billion dollars on this event to bolster their brand, their reputation in the world. 
Well, I think the difference between the World's Fairs of, of times past that you're talking about in the 1800s and certainly the early 1900s, given the way people communicated, person-to-person -person communication was really one of the only things that was available. And if you wanted to communicate something to a large group of people, you, you had to have those people physically in front of you. And many of the things that you talk about in terms of inventions were not necessarily inventions of an individual person or a country. They were certainly inventions and things that were attached to companies. And I think the modern day equivalent of revealing something like electricity or an elevator is something like a Tesla car or the iPhone. And I guess my question is, while it's nice to think about bringing people together, and it's nice to think about you know, having these grand moments of, of revealing new technology, new technology is owned by companies now, and they do not need to be at a festival to share their technology and create excitement and enthusiasm throughout the world. Do you think Apple would not unveil their phone at their own event and would unveil it at a World's Fair? Would Tesla not unveil their new car at their own event, they can still have probably a larger audience in the World's Fair. And I think, you know, the, the World's Fair today, when we think about Milan, the, the topic was feeding the world in food. So that's a universal uh, topic. That's a universal problem or question um, that can be solved by technology that incorporates a lot of different things. I don't know in this day and age if a company who has those technological developments would say, oh yeah, we'll sign on to a World's Fair and we'll go and reveal our thing there when having all the control over it, having the same reach, perhaps even greater reach. I mean, I'm sure the Apple keynote address every year probably has more viewers than you could pack into <laughs> any physical space. Yeah, it, it's a super good point and one you know, that people bring up. And where my head is at is so when the World's Fair existed, it was this place in 1964 and 65 in Flushing Meadows, New York, where over the two seasons, 51 million people got to go and experience the first video conference or the unveiling of the Ford Mustang for the first time or, you know, animatronics as invented by Walt Disney in the PepsiCo pavilion called It's a Small World, which Disney originally you know, designed and created for the World's Fair and then shipped It's a Small World to Disneyland after. Um, and that was, you know, those 51 million people, that was over 25% of the entire country. The, the U.S. population in 64, 65 was about 190 million. But they didn't have the same accessibility to things that they have now. See, it's interesting. So that's like, I, I feel like there's a misconception. Because so right now, if you want to experience the future, there are a handful of places you can go. You can go to South by Southwest. You can go to TED Conference. You can go to CES. You can go to TechCrunch Disrupt. I can go to the Kipps Bay AMC movie theater where they have an augmented virtual reality exhibit in the lobby. And I think I that's, mean, I can go yeah. to Sony. I can go to Nike has, you know, futuristic things. I can go online. I can watch a TED Talk. I can, you know, watch experiments. I can, you know, see a live cast of something on Facebook. There are a lot of ways for me to experience the future if I look around for it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I feel that too because I seek all those things out. But when we ask people, and so we're going to have, you know, eight or 10,000 people come to our event in Brooklyn in, uh, next, uh, well, next weekend. 
And when you ask them, it's like one in 30 or one in 40 have actually tried on a virtual reality headset or almost none of them have ever actually flown a drone. None of them have ridden an electric skateboard. None of them have tried cricket powder protein or Soylent or chewable coffee. Um, none of them have, have talked to a humanoid robot before in person. And so it's so weird. It, like, it seems like the future's there and, oh yeah, I've tried it, but you haven't really. And until a person actually experiences the future, they don't, they don't know what it means to them. And they, don't, they don't know how excited that they could become by it. And, and what they would want to do with their life if they knew the excitement um, that a certain piece of future brought them. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. It's like people feel like they've you know, tried everything. They feel like they've tried the brain wearable that changes their mood or but just because they've seen it online. But until you have the visceral, physical experience of what this means to me as a, as a you know, corporeal, physical thing... I find you don't um, you don't gain the possible inspiration that you would in your life if you got to actually actually try it. That's a very interesting point, um, and it is one that we talk about quite a bit on this show from a variety of points of view. You know, technology versus the real life experience, and many times, especially in the digital tech space and web tech, um, we are utilizing technology ultimately to get us to a real life experience, especially when we're talking about food. But we're gonna take a little break right now to find out who our amazing sponsors are for Heritage Radio Network and for Tech Bytes. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, which means we keep the lights on and the radio on the airwaves entirely out of the generosity of our sponsors, underwriters, and members like you. Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. One of the nice things about Bob's Red Mill is it's the only that I know of national supplier that's easily available for lots of interesting, hard to get grains and other seed products. So, you know, before Bob's Red Mill became widely available, you couldn't go get something like quinoa very easily, or you couldn't go get spelt easily in small quantities. But now you go to any one of the huge number of stores that carry Bob's Red Mill, and you can get smaller amounts of these really interesting, fun things to play with. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Well, if you've just joined us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network every Thursdays at 11 a.m. where we talk about food tech with people who are making it, talking about it, thinking about it. I know you've used some food tech today, this week. Did you make a reservation? Did you order food? Did you look at a picture? Did you download a recipe? 
we would love to hear from you what your favorite food tech is. We are very interactive. Find us on social media at TechBytesHRN. Send us an email, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. What's your favorite app? What's your favorite food tech? Do you have an idea for a show? Do you have a company that you are working on? Are you an innovator? Let us know. Today, we are talking about someone who is trying to create the World's Fair for the United States. And he's doing it. It's something called the World's Fair Nano, which will be in Brooklyn at the Expo Center on September 16th and 17th. If you are interested in going, and you should at least check out the website because it has a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of art, products, tech, food, demos. Um, It's really amazing. It's a super ambitious lineup of people, and I don't really think that you could see 25% of it even if you spent all day on both days. There's so much going on. The website is WF nano.com that's wfnano.com and if you want to go and you're going to buy a ticket use the promo code techbytes t e c h b i t e s and you can get 15% off and maybe we will see you there so michael you have spent a lot of time curating all of the participants to this what what represents the the best of the uh, food tech that you have you think yeah, is there yeah. A, is there a big trend is there something I mean, how do you choose? I mean, it's difficult for me as the producer of this show to choose companies and guests because there are just so many things happening right now. Totally. I think, you know, a way we choose all of the future, including the food tech, is is this exciting to a broad group of people is the question we ask. Like, would this excite all of or most of our visitors if they got to see it or experience it or learn about it? Um, and so with the food tech, it's like, you know, one of the speakers we have coming is David Rosenberg, the CEO of Aero Farms. And Aero Farms is a vertical farming company. And they actually have the world's largest vertical farm out in Newark, New Jersey. I literally just went to visit it. Um, I think it was last week I went. And it's incredible. It's like a, um, you know, it's one acre of land, but it has the output of 390 acres of normal farming land. It's just like wild. And like, you know, learning that to me is exciting for anybody. Um, so, I mean, there's vertical farming, there's the, the NEMA sensor is pretty interesting. It's a, uh, it's a sensor to actually test gluten in food. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, they're coming in from out of New York, which is why we couldn't invite them. But, um, yeah, it'll, it gives you a result in 10 minutes, whether or not, like, the food you're about to eat has gluten. Is that active or is that a prototype? Is that an actual product? Yeah, I mean, they're bringing it. To, to World's Fair Nano for people to like That's really interesting. Demo. Yeah. Gluten-free is such a um, growing category um, in food in the U.S. And, and abroad for a variety of reasons, um, you know, ranging in the spectrum of one, people think it's, it's a good way to diet, all the way to people who actually physically can't have gluten. Totally. And it's funny now because I'll buy like eggs and it'll say gluten-free i'm like duh it's gluten-free it's eggs well but people don't really know what gluten is again sometimes i think a lot of people think gluten just means bread (laughs) yeah are you gluten do you eat gluten i eat gluten i eat pretty much everything we are that's good because we are sitting in roberta's Roberta's pizza Pizza. so that would be really absolutely i've eaten a lot of pizza over the over the years so how do you decide what you think is going to excite people? Um, is it, do, you, do you have is your own visceral reaction, uh, the starting barometer? What, 
I mean, so many of these things are, are limited in their reach and scope just because they are new. How do you, how do you make that decision? Yeah. So it's actually, I didn't bring it, but we do have, um, a decision tree that we actually spent like hours and hours making to determine, um, if a, a particular future should be at the event. And so the first question is like, is it in one of our future categories? And we have, I don't know, a hundred different future categories from, you know, food tech to space travel to renewable energy to virtual and augmented reality to robotics to transportation to whatever. And then if the answer is yes, then we go to the next one. And I think it's, you know, is this um, a product that was created within the last five years? Okay. And like if the answer is no, probably not going to be exciting to people because they've probably already seen it. Does it is it product created like new company or actually new product? Actually new product. So like if, if so Apple something you made, could have like a new company and a new version of something that maybe already existed. Totally, yeah. If Apple like astronaut ice cream. Like astronaut ice cream, which is still <laughs> really cool for people. We actually are having Dippin' Dots, the ice cream of the future at Worlds for a Nano, which is pretty epic. The evolution of astronaut ice cream. Yeah, I love Dippin' Dots personally. Yeah. Um but yeah, so we choose we choose stuff that we think is yeah, I mean, our reaction is important. And then also just taking the data from, like, the world. And so as an example, another cool kind of future food thing we're having is the Impossible Burger. We love the Impossible Burger. Awesome. Yes, so, they've been on the show. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, the, the Economist food truck is, the, the Economist, like, the magazine, has, yes. a, has a food truck that they're bringing to the event. And they're actually giving out 800 free Impossible Burgers each day. Um, and so, you know, the Impossible Burger, to us, it's really cool. But then also looking around the interwebs, it's pretty obvious that people are super excited about it. Everyone is like, this thing looks crazy. It's bloody, but it's not meat. What is it? So, you know. Well, the Impossible Burger is very interesting because it, it, we, we had them on the show episode 89 back in March. And fascinating thing about that company as a whole is that their founder, Pat Brown, really smart scientific guy he wants to solve a lot of the um, cataclysmic environmental problems that are happening in the planet in the world and that's his driving inspiration or focus and when he went about sort of figuring out how you could start to make significant inroads to solving some of the environmental problems the some of the answers came from making adjustments to food, food, agriculture, how food's produced and grown. And if you want to change that, you need to change the way people eat and their eating habits and their preferences and what they like and what they don't like. So it's a very interesting roundabout way where his end goal is one thing and he's doing it by taking like the most popular food item in America, the burger and creating an all plant-based version of that because cattle farming is a huge, requires a lot of natural resources. And the hamburger was first introduced to the public at, at the, the 1904 World's Fair, World's yeah. Fair in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but where did Impossible Burger launch their burger? <laughs> I don't know. where. At a private PR event. Oh, there's the... the. <laughs> there in line. But I mean, that's just one of sort of the questions that I think that's a contemporary... Uh, a very specific contemporary issue that didn't exist, you know, a hundred years ago. Yeah. Have you tried an impossible burger? I've had them many times. I actually have it. I'm excited. Um, I think it's great. I really like it. I mean, I'm a fan of the classic beef burger. 
Um, and I've, I've had the impossible burger as the regular burger on the bun with the cheese and all that. And it's quite good. It, it, it absolutely lives up to, uh, all the promises. It is kind of chewy. It has that flavor. It has that mouthfeel. Um, it's great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it does have gluten though. Oh, it does. It does have gluten because one of the um, ingredients that they use that gives it that color and that really meaty umami flavor um, is something that comes from wheat. Is that, is that the hem? Yes. Right. Yeah. So we'll have to. So if we yeah. Nema, if we Nema sensor the Impossible yeah. Burger, it will have gluten. It'll have gluten. Yeah, but they're quite good. Awesome. Um, so. When you talk about the future also, this is, uh, you know, this is a tricky thing. We're talking about impossible foods. Um, obviously, you can have an impossible burger now. Um, they were in New York. We had them when we had them on in, in March. They were launching it at Bear Burger, the burger chain. It is the future is now kind of thing, though, right? Because you can get an impossible burger now. Yes, yeah, tricky. So future and then future now. It's so small that, you know, it's really not universal or not part of our everyday life or hasn't entered into just the vernacular. When, when does something become large enough or successful enough or have enough um, public engagement that it crosses over from being future now to today? Yeah, so the future is relative. And so, you know, we're sitting here with like awesome lights and a bathroom nearby and clean water. Whereas like in India, you know, where I've visited, those things don't exist. And so in, in a lot of places, like in some parts in, in Mumbai, it's one in every, there's one toilet for every hundred people. And so for them, you know, the future is having access to sanitation and a shower. Um, whereas to us, the future might be trying an Impossible Burger or the newest virtual reality headset. Whereas to someone else in my same neighborhood, the future might be playing the new Xbox or League of Legends for the first time. I don't know. So the future is relative based on your experience and your point of view and your sort of whatever your cultural footprint is. Yeah, it's like it's just if it's gotten to you yet. It's like you can think of the future like butter and humanity like a piece of toast and you're one of the specks on that toast and has the butter spread over you yet. Mm. Um and I think the World's Fair I like because, you know, historically it's spread the butter to a shit ton more people than it would have gotten to otherwise. Um, so that's how I see the future. And yeah, like with the Impossible Burger, you know, I still haven't tried it. <laughs> I would. Ima- I don't think anyone in my office has actually, which is crazy. And where's your office located? We're in uh, near here in like East Williamsburg, right, right near the Graham L stop. Well, I think they have the Impossible Burger at the LaGuardia outpost. Like the airport? No, no, LaGuardia um, in Manhattan. The oh. by NYU. Oh, cool. oh, Arturo is my favorite pizza place in the yeah, world. Yeah, right around the corner there. on uh, right around the corner on oh, Houston. I love it. Yeah, Arturo's. so right by there. So you should take a you should take an office field trip. Yeah, yeah, we definitely should. We like office field trips. Um, so yeah, that's how I think about the future. Like, really, has it spread yet? So, what's an example of something that? Maybe I'm sure you get a lot of companies approaching you to participate. What's an example of something, and you don't have to necessarily name a company name. Yeah. I'm just more curious about something that you said, no, that's not the future. Yeah. I mean, like in the U.S., for example, if there was just a smartphone, as an example, if someone hit us up and they were like, we have a smartphone, let's put it at your event. Now smartphones are ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Like everyone I see, literally everyone I see has a smartphone. If you don't, it's because you really mostly choose not to. Um, 
And so like a smartphone, like the iPhone in my hand, for example, isn't here the future. In other parts of the world, it actually might be, though. I mean, there are, there are many places without smartphones. But that's an example of something that is still cool and definitely part of us, part of this 21st century future, but not, the, not a new future. What's the, one of the things that you're most excited about? Or that you just, uh, is, is there something that you can't believe or just can't wrap your head around or? Yeah, it's a really tough question. I mean, um, it's, I'm sure it's like with the classic thing, you know, you have many children and technically you don't have a favorite, but. It is like that. I don't have kids yet though, so. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I like so much stuff. I mean, we have a fully solar powered car coming, which I think is awesome. I think, you know, the whole world should obviously be full of solar powered cars. Um, we have some amazing virtual reality stuff. We have an omnidirectional treadmill coming, which is when you can, you know, you, you put on a VR headset and then you can literally turn and run in any direction and be running through or walking or running through a virtual reality world. That's a pretty crazy feeling. Um, we have this, this Android named Bina 48 coming. She's, um, one of the world's most advanced social AIs, Androids. And she's based off of the mind file of a real-life woman named Bina. So there's this woman named Bina. They basically created like a, like a digital personality for her by taking um, her digital history, text messages, re- video recordings, audio recordings. And then they uploaded it into a neural net and created you know, this, this entity called Bina48. And she's actually coming to the event to like talk to people and interact with people. That's very fascinating, the idea of living on forever in a pseudo-biological form, um, but, but still maintaining consciousness. Um, the dr- I mean, we have a huge drone cage. You can fly like 30 drones at once for, for 30 amazing. different people, which is a fun future. We're building a 500-foot racetrack for electric skateboards, which is a really fun thing to try. And then on <laughs> the food front, you also have, a, you have an entire food area yeah that's yeah. one of that's one of your future categories yeah so future food yeah is a huge category and when we spoke before the show you had expressed uh a, a specific interest in including food not just because it's fun but because of the um question that i think many many organizations and events are trying to solve which is how do you feed all the people Totally. Yeah. I mean, the expo in Milan was, that was, it was, you know, feeding the planet energy for life was the theme. And it was all about how are we going to feed 9 billion people by 2050? Um, and yeah, in our future food section, a lot of the companies there are thinking about that. So Soylent, for example, is coming and giving out 6,000 bottles of Soylent. Soylent, for those of you who don't know, it's like a, a meal in a bottle. It's like a super packed protein drink yeah, thing. Yeah, totally. And it, you can ship it anywhere. Named for an old sci-fi movie. Yeah. A very tongue-in-cheek, because in the movie, Soylent was made from people. Yeah, this, this <laughs> one's not. <laughs> Although, I guess I haven't seen the factory, but... Um, Do we know if it's gluten-free? I don't know. Good question. We have to name it. We're going yep. to have to name it. You're going to have to go through the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, the idea of just having meals in bottles that don't need to be refrigerated. They can Alternate ship proteins. around the world. Yeah. Or, um, yeah, we were talking cricket powder is another big one. Cricket is a big alternate protein uh, storyline, just kind of generally that I see quite a bit in the different entrepreneur startup kind of products. Um, 
And, you know, in some parts of the world, eating little things like that are very similar to like eating crab or lobster, just smaller versions, and you pop the whole thing into your mouth. So it's also, um, you know, going back to your the future is relative analogy, I wonder if there are some parts of the world who would not think eating crickets is very futuristic. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I bet the def, the def, eating the actual cricket, there are undoubtedly places where that's not futuristic, but eating crickets in the way that as an we, energy people bar. are going to at our yeah. event, right? Yeah. As like energy bar, or we're having a company called Chirps Chips, mm-hmm. which is as you know, chips or like, or like cricket seek, snacks, right? Cricket snacks, right? Seek yeah. Foods makes these like like cricket snack sort of ball type things. Mm-hmm. So like in that way. Yeah, it's interesting because you could probably find a couple things like that in the food category because food is very focused about your frame of reference and, and what you eat every day. Um, we had a very interesting show, one of the early, early shows, I think in 2015 with IBM chef Watson and Bon Appetit magazine. Oh, that's awesome. And they were teaching Watson uh, the computer. The, it's a cognitive computer so it can learn. They were teaching it to cook by downloading all of the uh, Bon Appetit magazine recipe database and then a bunch of other things. And the interesting thing was that um, Chef Watson, there's a website you can go. There's also a Facebook group. So it learned how to cook and it learned different recipes and it learned how everything works. So you could punch in like three ingredients, you know, banana, fish and soy sauce and you would you would ask it to make you a recipe for breakfast or something like that or you would ask it to make you a recipe and it would give you it would create a recipe for you so it's not trawling through a database of recipes and and surfacing one that meets all those requirements it's literally fabricating a new recipe based on your inputs and the thing that's interesting about it is that it learns from the data that you put into it so Bon Appetit magazine is obviously a very sort of like Western cuisine, Western perspective focus. They put in recipes and books from other cultures. So sometimes you would get something where a breakfast recipe might have fish in it, which to Watson, because it's compiled all these different things, that would make sense. But to, you know, someone who grew up in New York City, eating fish for breakfast is probably really weird um, and not breakfasty, whereas somebody who grew up in Kyoto, yeah, fish for breakfast is totally what you would have. Unless Watson put it on a bagel. Exactly. So, (laughs) but it's interesting because Watson didn't have or doesn't have the, the cultural like predisposition of what is breakfast is supposed to be. Yeah. So it's kind of, I mean, it's very interesting. It's a fascinating episode and the whole IBM Watson cognitive learning computer across the board is just fascinating in terms of the different things that they're doing. But the cooking application, the food application, so it's fun and it's almost like a parlor trick where you put, you know, the things in you want and I want it spicy or not spicy. I want it to be, you know, fun or festive or breakfast or for four people. And it makes a recipe for you. But the idea was, you know, eventually if we had smart, you know, refrigerators or smart pantries, it could give you a recipe to cook a dish based on what you had. So if you open up your refrigerator and you have, you know, some sliced turkey and a jar of mayonnaise and half an apple, you could put that in and it would give you a recipe for it. So you would not have food waste. Yeah. Versus saying, here's a recipe that calls for turkey, mayonnaise and peaches. Yeah. No, the customization for eating that big data allows is really interesting. Funny enough, I actually ate some Watson 
concocted food at this thing called Daybreaker in mm-hmm. SF. And it was very curious. It was like they were, you know, sort of protein bar-ish, a lot of like berries and nuts. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it, was, uh, it was memorable. Yeah. I, I remember eating Chef Watson's dishes. Very interesting. Well, lots of interesting things at the World's Fair Nano, um, which will be again September 16th and 17th. You can get tickets at WFNANO.com, WFNANO.com. Use the promo code TechBytes for 15% off your ticket. I want to thank Michael Weiss for coming out to Roberta's, to Bushwick, to the Heritage Radio Network studio to do the show with us today. Tech Bytes is every Thursdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can listen to it live, and after that, you can listen to it on demand on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and your favorite podcasting platform. It is hosted and produced by me. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. It is engineered by David Tadashore, HRN's studio manager, and our theme song is by DJ Uptown Nico. It is called Nomada CPU Track, and it always takes us out of the show. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.